chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, let's read together verses 7 through 9, Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 to begin our study together. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things that he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. We'll be noticing together from this passage heaven's view of the cross. Heaven's view of the cross. We ask ourselves, how do I picture the cross how do I picture Calvary? Many have pictured Calvary in a number of different ways. Some mock it, you know. I've seen pictures of people severely mocking the cross of our Lord. Some have painted, actually done paintings of Jesus. You've probably seen these. Jesus hanging on the cross, blood flowing down his body, a look of pain on his face, a look of grief on the face of Mary as she's down at the ground at the bottom of the cross. How do we picture the cross? We love picturing the cross from these great songs that we've been singing such as when I surveyed the wondrous cross. We love to picture and we, we're, it's appropriate to picture the cross as that song uh, details for us. See from his head, his hands and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose such a rich crown. The Romans looked at the cross as one in a thousand. This is just an unknown Galilean. There'll be many more to follow him. The Jews looked at the cross as a justified execution of a blasphemer. The question is, how do, how do we look at the cross? And we'll notice here from Hebrews 5, Heaven's view of the cross, what we see as we look back at the cross. Let's not miss the obvious, of course. Hebrews 5, right here in verses 8 and 9, says that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. If Jesus is the source of eternal salvation, then who are the recipients, according to verse 9? Who are the recipients? If Jesus is the author, then who are the recipients? Everybody? Does everybody get eternal salvation? 
Does everybody who feels it in their heart, do they get eternal salvation? Do the sayers, do those who declare themselves to be saved, are those, are those the ones that uh, obtain eternal salvation? No, as we see it here in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 5, those who obey him, as the Lord himself says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father uh, who is in heaven. This ought to be coupled with John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. This needs to be put together. Okay. Yes, believe in Jesus, but that means to obey him, surrender to him. But I want us to dive a little deeper this evening together. When we look at the cross, here's what we see. We see the suffering Savior. We see the godly prayer. We see the reason to obey. We see the role to be fulfilled, and we see the two for eternity. Please walk through this with me, and let's together, let's try to put everything out of our mind as best as possible, and think rather individually, personally, soberly, as we contemplate the cross. First, we see the suffering Savior. Notice here in Hebrews 5, verse 7, he's talking about Jesus praying, and he's doing it with loud cries and tears, and he's doing it at the point of death. This most likely refers to that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay. And so... Think about Jesus' suffering. Think about how that his suffering came from his friends. Suffering came from his friends. As they got up from that supper there on Thursday night before the cross, and they had just eaten the Passover meal, Jesus' heart was very heavy because of his friends. He knew that one of his dear friends would betray him. And also, he had just heard his closest friends arguing, which is grief enough because he intends to turn all this responsibility, spiritual responsibility, over to these men. And they've been arguing for the last few hours, and they have a very gross misunderstanding about the kingdom of God, and, and they're, they're thinking of our earthly a situation when Jesus thinking spiritual and so his heart is heavy because of his friends and his friends include us he is about to go to the cross and he's carrying the weight of the sins of the world uh, with him there as 1st Peter 2 24 clearly tells us that Jesus in his own body he bare our sins on the tree that we having died to sin might live unto righteousness, Jesus bore our sins there. And so the suffering is coming from his friends, his friends. 
And the suffering is seen also, as you keep on thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane for a minute, the suffering is coming from those different positions he took as he prayed. Okay. You remember the different postures that he assumed as he prayed. Luke 22:44 says he knelt down as he prayed. Mark 14, 33 through 35 says he fell on the ground as he prayed. Coming back to Matthew 26 and 39, it says that Jesus fell on his face as he prayed. Obviously, this is a, this is a sign of great distress that he is uh, walking through at this time. And then we see his suffering also through the words that describe him at this time in the garden. Going back to Luke 22 and 44, it says Jesus was in great agony. 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 The word agony means to have extreme reluctance. I don't want to go there. Extreme reluctance. Try to think of something that that really you are very reluctant to do during your life and then quadruple that for Jesus here. It was great agony. Maybe, maybe one thing that comes to your mind, I remember when I first started in, in, in ministry, if you will, that it was a brand new thing for me to go into a nursing home. And you can just think about all the senses that are disturbed when you go into a nursing home. And that's, just think about that. I'm, you know, you think about to yourself, I'm not going there. Am I going in there? Are we going in there, really? And not only do you, do you smell and sense things, but you see things that you would have never seen before. Think about the reluctance of doing something. This is extreme, this is, this is appalling reluctance that Jesus, he is agonizing over the shadows of the cross. And then another word back in Matthew 26, 37 and 38, said Jesus was troubled in his soul. Troubled in his soul. The word trouble means to be hemmed in from every side. Sorrow had him, Jesus, in from every side. In other words, there was no escape from the sorrow. You know, no matter which way Jesus looked, it was nothing but the cross uh, ahead of him. And so he was troubled and he agonized uh, as, uh, as he headed to the, to the cross. So we see his suffering from his friends and from the different positions that he assumed and also from the words that describe it, and also from the sweat. Remember, Luke 22 it says his sweat became, as it were, drop, great drops of blood. There's certainly agony behind those, those drops of sweat. Whether that's a comparison or whether that's real, either way, either way, there's trauma here. Maybe this is physical trauma. Maybe it is the condition that doctors have described where when there is intense emotion that your, that your blood vessels can actually rupture and, and ooze out into your sweat glands, maybe that's what's taking place. E either way, either way, there's great suffering here.
And so first we see the suffering Savior, and then in the next place, notice the godly prayer. And focusing now more on Hebrews 5, notice the godly prayer. It is a prayer made with strong emotions, with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears. Jesus is pouring out his soul. Before, he's pouring out his heart before his father. We recall in 1 Samuel 1 that as Hannah prayed, that's exactly what she did. She was praying for her son and she poured out her soul. 1 Samuel 1, I think it's verses 10 and 11. This is what Jesus is doing. This ought to, ought to uh, cause us to, to look at our own prayer life. And what sort of prayers are we praying? How intently do we feel? What is the intensity behind our prayers? Are we pouring out our soul? As 1 Peter 5, 7 says, are we casting all of our care upon him? It's a prayer with great emotion. It's also a prayer with great confidence. Notice here in Hebrews 5, it says, He prayed unto him who is able to save him from death. Jesus was strongly confident that God was able to save him from, from death. You may say, well, he didn't. Well, he did, because the word from here means out of. Literally means out of. Jesus is not praying so he can escape the cross, but he's praying to the one whom he believes will bring him back from the dead. This is an allusion to the, to the resurrection indeed. So he, pray, he prays with great confidence uh, to the Father. Is there anything the Father can't do? Jesus firmly believed uh, in the Father. And the Lord Jesus prayed with great reverence. Notice that he was heard because of his godly fear. He was heard because of his great, strong reverence uh, for God. Prayer was not just a pastime. It was, not just, it was not just a saying. When we pray, do we really believe that we are, that we have been in the presence of the Almighty or is it simply a time where we have been talking to ourselves? Jesus prayed with great reverence. If we pray with great reverence, we're not going to just utter a few words to God as we're walking into a building or as we're getting out of our car. No, we're going to block out some time because this is the Almighty and He deserves more reverence than anyone that you ever speak to entirely in your life. Now back to the emotion part. When we think about godly prayer, pray with great emotion. Does this mean that Jesus was afraid to die? All this emotion that Jesus is showing, does this mean that he was afraid to die? Well, not at all. Jesus had way too much experience and knowledge of the afterlife to be afraid to die. But folks, listen carefully. There is no other death that remotely comes close to the death of Jesus. 
Remember, going back to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, let this cup pass from me. The cup refers to the cup of, of God's judgment, divine judgment. For a reference on that, you might check Job 21, verse 20. Job 21, verse 20, where Job says that the wicked will drink of the wrath of the Almighty. The Almighty has some wrath. And Jesus is bearing the cup of that divine judgment. And at the same time, he is being despised every step of the way. He is being despised for doing what he's doing. He wasn't afraid to die, but the enormity of bearing what Jesus was bearing is really hard for us to put actual words and attach those words to this happening. And so when we look back at the cross, we see the godly prayer. And then we also see the reason to obey. When we look back at Calvary, we see the reason to obey. Now, to say it lightly, commitment, commitment among those who profess to be Christians is rather embarrassing. It's just almost non-existent. True Bible-based commitment. And that's not saying anything personally about any Body who's, who's here, anybody that's listening, it's just the way it is, by and large. Okay. One reason for this is that things have been oversimplified. There's, there, things are oversimplified. Okay. In other words, people sum it up like this. They say, now, the reason I want to obey Christ is so that I can get forgiveness. And then after I get that forgiveness, then the rest is icing on the cake. In other words, Jesus, um, Jesus died for me so that I wouldn't no longer have to worry about my sins. And then after that, whether or not, or the extent to which I follow and obey him is entirely up to me. Okay. Now, what I have just described to you is basically the thought of a number of people who profess to follow uh, Jesus Christ. One theological teacher describes it as barcode uh, Christianity. Barcode Christianity. In other words, I've got, I've got my barcode attached to me now, and I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And whenever that time is, that, that uh, the, the end of time comes, then, the, then that great scanner in the sky, that great scanner in the sky... Uh, he's going to let me pass through. I'm going to have on my barcode, and he's going to let me pass through. When push comes to shove, I believe he's going to let me pass through. Okay. You see, this reduces living for Christ to a one-off event. I have obeyed. I've got my forgiveness. Now it's entirely up to me as to what I do with it. But this passage here 
has something for us. It said Jesus obeyed. If the reason to obey is to get forgiveness, why did Jesus obey? Did Jesus have any sin? No. Right here in the book of Hebrews 4.15, he was yet without sin. Is there anything that was forcing Jesus to go to the cross? Not at all. He once told us, you know, that, that he could summon angels from every corner in heaven to come and, and, and stop all of these events from happening. Jesus says in John 10, 17 and 18, No man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power uh, to take it again. Why did Jesus obey? And this is where we need to drink deeply of the scriptures. Jesus obeyed because his desires were exactly the same as the Heavenly Father's desires. And this is where, this is where I need to be. This is where you need to be. It's not just some one-off event. It's not just a good thought here and there. Are my desires matching the desires of the Lord Jesus? I think about Abraham. Hebrews 11, 8 says that, that when God called him to go into another country, by faith Abraham obeyed. But that's not the first time you read about it. That's not the only time you read about Abraham obeying. Later, Genesis 22, verse 1, later Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, when God said, go take your son to Mount Moriah, what did Abraham do? He obeyed. Abraham understood. He understood obedience. And so here, as we look back to the cross, we find the reason to obey, which is forgiveness, but which is much more what we're trying to do, we're trying to become more like Christ. We're trying to be, become more like our God. His desires, His thoughts, and His intentions must, be, must become ours. And basically, what is it that we know about the Father? 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, He would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, our, our desires must be exactly like His desires. And then fourthly, this evening as we look back at the cross, we see the role to be fulfilled. And, and if you have read Hebrews uh, chapters 1 through um, almost the entire chapter, all book of Hebrews, focuses on Jesus being the high priest. Jesus being our high priest. Notice the words here in, in our passage tonight, Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. It, it uses such words as Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And Jesus was made perfect. Jesus was made perfect. How is it that, that it is, why is it described like this? Well, Jesus learned in the sense of human experience. Okay. 
in order for Jesus to be our high priest, he had to come and live as a human, human experience. As Hebrews 4.15 says, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so he came, and as a human, he grew. Luke 2.52, Jesus advanced in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And as he, as he advanced, as his knowledge of what to do became apparent, then Jesus humbly submitted to that and obeyed. Okay. As his knowledge expanded, his obedience did as well. Both because he's the son of God, but also he was going through this human experience. Hebrews 2.17 Hebrews 2.17 says, It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a faithful right? high priest. High priest. And so we see here, as we look back to the cross, we see Jesus and the role that he must assume as our high priest. Notice in Hebrews 5 here it says he was made perfect. Made perfect. Not morally perfect. Jesus is already there. He's already perfect. Morally, intellectually, he's already perfect. But perfect in the sense of completion, you see. As Jesus is headed to the cross, he is completing the qualifications that are needed to become that high priest. He must be a human. Okay. He must suffer for us. He must be sacrificed for us. And he must be raised from the dead for us. And once he goes through this, then he will be made, he was made perfect in the sense that he was complete. He completely fulfilled the qualifications for the role of high priest, you see. It's very interesting that Jesus takes on a dual role here. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is both the shepherd and the lamb. When you lay down tonight, Dwell on that a little bit. It's an amazing thought to contemplate all that the Lord is. And it's right here in these scriptures. And then finally, we notice the two for eternity. When we look at the cross look back at the cross, from heaven's viewpoint, we see the two for eternity. The two is suffering. Okay. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience to the things which he suffered. It's obvious that the heavenly father used the tool of suffering with Jesus, in Jesus, in order to bring out the possibility of eternal life for those who want to follow him. So it is that the Father also uses suffering to prepare us, the tool of suffering to prepare us for eternity. Now Jesus did not need expansion intellectually or morally, as we said, 
He was simply passing through the human experience and being willing to lay down his life for us. Okay. He didn't need expansion intellectually or morally, but oh, how we need it. We have so much to learn. We need the scriptures. And we need suffering in order to help us to learn and to grow. As James says in James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. We remember reading from John 15 that, that the branch that bears fruit God purges it. He cuts on it, trims it back so that it can bear more fruit. And if we had time, we could even turn over to Hebrews 12 and verses 5 and following and see how that as the earthly fathers, parents, discipline their children, so does the heavenly father discipline us so that we can grow in his sight. So the Father uses suffering in order to help us to grow spiritually, to become more like him. No wonder Paul says in Philippians 3 and verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know, wait for it, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Why did Paul, Paul, are you some sort of nut? You want to suffer? Paul knew the eternal basic truth that without hardship, then we have no possibility of growing in Christ. And there's a part of us that would prefer to remain as an infant in our mother's arms so that our every need would be met by somebody else and that we wouldn't have to hurt or worry about anything. But God has so much more in store uh, for us. He has something that if we will look at it as he looks at it, it's so much better than being worry-free or carefree, and that is to become more like his son. The will of God is far greater for us, for you, for me. The will of God is far greater for you. than anything that we could possibly design or imagine for ourselves. Do I believe that? Do I trust that that is the case? How do I get there? Only through the cross. Heaven's view of the cross May we grow in him. May we see things as the Father 
sees them. May we stay near to the cross. May we stay true to the cross. If we can assist anyone this evening with gospel obedience or with any spiritual need, please allow us to do so right now as we stand together, as we sing.